Welcome to the 8th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Trisha Chandran from Project 39A, and we're a criminal justice initiative based off the National Law University in Delhi. In this episode of the 39A podcast, senior advocate and criminal law practitioner, Ms. Nithya Ramakrishnan, discusses what sets apart the stringent bail provisions under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, or the UAPA, it makes it very difficult for an accused to secure bail once charged for offences under the Act. She comments on the decision of the Delhi High Court from June 2021, granting bail to three student activists, Asif Iqbal Tanha, Natasha Narwal, and Devangana Kalita, while coming to the finding that their acts of protest against the Citizenship Amendment Act did not meet the standard of a terrorist act as defined under the UAPA. Ms. Ramakrishnan, argues that the decision of the Delhi High Court is logically sound and does not come in conflict with the Supreme Court's 2019 landmark ruling in Zahur Ahmad Shah Batali. Thank you so much for giving us your time, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you so much, Trisha. Hello, ma'am. So we're here today to discuss the UAPA uh, bail provisions at Section 43B, and a lot has been said about it, and uh, it's quite well known that it is extremely difficult to secure bail under the UAPA. So before we understand what makes the provisions under the U- UAPA for bail so stringent and draconian, uh, could you, for the benefit of our listeners, briefly explain the considerations that courts keep in mind while granting bail in ordinary cases? Under ordinary law, criminal law, offences are of two kinds, bailable and non-bailable. Bailable offences are where the police, upon arrest, must release on bail if whatever security they choose to impose, which must be reasonable, is given. A non-bailable case is is one where the police has no power to release an arrestee on bail and it's only a court which can grant release on bail. Now, the first court that before which any arrested person is normally produced is the court of the magistrate. The magistrate is empowered in two ways. When a person is produced under Section 167, actually is empowered to hold that there is no further detention required. That is not bail. It just, a magistrate may simply not authorize further detention. This often escapes people's mind because almost nobody thinks of it in that fashion. But because a magistrate has to authorize further detention, whether in police custody or in judicial custody, that means the magistrate has the discretion not to authorize further detention and there the matter can end. Independently of that, the magistrate has power under Section 437 of the CRPC to grant bail. It does not require an application. An application, of course, may be made. But what Section 437 CRPC says is as soon as an accused is brought before a court, the court may release such a person on bail. So one is may not authorize further detention, may authorize further detention. Independently, the magistrate may release on bail. And of course, if an application is made for bail, the magistrate will certainly consider that. There are some restrictions on the power of a magistrate to release on bail. 
for the moment, I would say, in a case punishable with death or life imprisonment, the magistrate would not normally should not normally grant bail because the CRPC has some restrictions in that regard. The Sessions Court and the High Court are not trammeled by any such condition with regard to a statutory condition for a grant to be. First thing I mentioned, as far as the magistrate is concerned, there's a statutory restriction on grant of bail in um, cases punishable with death or imprisonment for life, and of course, some others. But even then, if the magistrate comes to the conclusion at some point of time that um, those offences are not made out, even then, bail may be granted. Now, under the new amendments to the CRPC, after some judgments, if the offence is punishable with less than seven years, then arrest ought not to be automatic. So even in non-bailable cases, if it's punishable with less than seven years, reason should be recorded in writing for either arrest or not arresting. However, a notice must first go to the accused to come and answer and cooperate with the investigation. And it is only on an understanding that there is no non-cooperation, which has to be recorded in writing, that there can be an arrest. So under seven years now, or seven years or less has been now further prescribed for under the CRPC. This is non-arrest. This is not bail. In non-bailable cases, where a court alone can grant bail, there is no restriction under ordinary law, no statutory restriction for the High Court or the Court of Session. However, jurisprudence has emerged that some factors will have to be kept in mind. The seriousness of the offence, the character of the evidence, the likelihood of the person absconding or interfering with witnesses, the possibility of trial getting impeded in any other fashion, possibility of a repeat of such an offence. These are the normal conditions, uh, considerations for granted bail. Even under normal law, if the offence is considered serious, courts are often reluctant to grant bail at the initial stages. If there has been prolonged incarceration, under ordinary law, Section 436A of the CRPC says, if you've spent half the maximum sentence as an under trial, then there is a right to be released on bail. But that would not apply if the offence is one for which death is also prescribed as a punishment, as an alternative punishment. But for reasons recorded in writing, a person may not be released on bail, but at least some right accrues. So the statute also recognizes that long, a long period of incarceration. And if you consider what is long, it is a matter of assessment. But at least there's a statutory restriction, uh, recognition that if you spent half the maximum as an under trial, and if the offense is one, which is not where, where death is not also an alternative punishment, then there should be a release on bail unless there is extraordinary reason which the public prosecutor brings forth. 
this does not take away from the power of the high court or the court of sessions and in cases punishable with less than seven years the magistrate to grant pay at any stage and that should be on an assessment of all the factors that i mentioned and plus there could be specific reasons illness age various things but the broad parameters are what i stated sometime around 1985 though that is not really it's happened before in other ways but for our purposes when special statutes because when they considered but you know some activities some kind of crimes to be so extraordinary that they needed a deviation from ordinary procedure that was the view that is not the view i necessarily take special statutes came for instance the ndps act 1985 which not only provided high minimum sentences such as 10 years but also placed an embargo so up until now i'm talking about normal cases where the high court and the court of session certainly has the discretion to release on bail on the parameters i mentioned and it would be tested in each case but the discretion was not trammeled by statute there was no law saying that the court is is not empowered does not have the power to release on bail the court of session or the high court when the ndps act came section 37 placed a restriction on the court's discretion to release on bail one condition was the public prosecutor will have to be heard and the other condition was i'm putting it simply that the court should be convinced at that stage that the accused there are reasonable grounds to believe that the accused is not guilty of the offense these two conditions were repeated in tada in 1987 they are part of mcoca section 214 and they were also there in porta it was even then considered and been the provision has been challenged but it has been upheld on the grounds of expediency and there being a purposiveness to this restriction even then there was a, there is an irony in this because at that stage as an under trial it may be before the charge sheet or it may be even after the charge sheet but the accused point of view any material in favor of the accused or eliciting contradictions by way of um, cross examination may not have arisen yet if a court has to come to a conclusion that the, there are reasonable grounds to believe that the accused is not guilty of the offense what is it that the court can look at so it appears to be an i mean it's an ir- ironical kind of provision and also there is a, there should be a question mark on why you have judicial officers who are supposed to know what ought to be done the normal conditions of grant of bail which jurisprudence has evolved which i had listed earlier when they are sufficient a court can form an opinion this is my view now court can say okay this is very heinous we believe this is a person who has repeatedly committed drug offenses will not release on bail or there's every chance of this person absconding has not cooperated with the investigation i'm not going into anticipatory bail anyway under these these ndps porta terror cases there is no possibility of anticipatory bail is forbidden so these new statutes forbid anticipatory bail 
the special statutes forbid anticipatory bail and make even the grant of bail after arrest difficult by restricting the court's discretion, what was always left to the court to decide and not to the investigating agency. That power has been restricted by these statutes. I think that brings me to my next question. In fact, uh, I was wondering, uh, is the is then the um, section under the UAPA, which is Section 43D, uh, so very different from um, these other special statutes, such as the NDPS and the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which is now repealed, uh, and the bail provisions that they contain? And... Um, what would you say is the major deviance that the UAPA makes from um, normal bail provisions that makes it so difficult for people to secure bail under it? See, the difference is in emphasis. And that has given rise to interpretations, first in the Watali case and then in a case called Najib versus Union of India versus Najib. I'll come to that. Now, as I said, all those earlier statutes, they said the court has to be satisfied that there are reasonable grounds for believing that the accused is not guilty of the offense. Which, and I mentioned the irony in that. Now, the UAPA says bail shall not be granted. In the earlier statutes, there was also a satisfaction to be recorded that uh, three things. Public prosecutor has to be heard. Court has to come to the conclusion that the grounds to believe that the accused is not guilty of the offence. Third, also has to come to the conclusion that he is unlikely to repeat the same kind of offence. I mean, not a traffic offence, but the same kind of offence. That has been interpreted in the case of Ranjit Singh. UAPA, in as much as it, you know, it's, it, it now says reasonable grounds for be believing that the accusation is true. Now, the earlier provision in the context of MCOCA, there is a judgment of the Supreme Court which says it can't be, this restriction cannot be stressed too far, too much. Basically, the court must assess the material to see whether a conviction will result, is likely to result, and if a court is of the opinion that a conviction is unlikely to result, then they should be released on bail. And for that limited purpose, it can assess the evidence. That was under the MCOCA, which said reasonable grounds for believing the accused is not guilty of the offense. In Zahur, in Zahur Batali, Zahur, I think, the first name, Zahur Batali, the Supreme Court, having seen this judgment, looks at the difference in words and says that the Batali judgment places a higher threshold for grant of bail and a lower threshold for resisting the bail. It says now... It is sufficient for the court to look at the material and come to the conclusion it is prima facie true and to come to the conclusion that it is prima facie true, all that the court has to do is to look at the material brought by the prosecution and if it is unrebutted and not disproved, then it should be taken to be true at this stage. Now, again, there is an irony because at that stage, where is the question of disproving it? Disproving it comes in the trial. Further, the Batali case also says that the court must not go into issues of admissibility, must not minutely weigh the evidence. So where is then the question of disproving it? But this is the view taken by Batali. 
after Vatali, so it quotes Brahmjit, Ranjit Singh, Brahmjit Singh under MCOCA. But now says that it is sufficient if the prosecution says, okay, this is the material we brought and the court has to look at all of it. And unless it is rebutted, it must be taken to be true. So the nature of the conclusion, which is the discretion of the court, has also been virtually dictated. Now comes Union of India versus Naji. It brings in some interesting concepts, but those concepts remain, have had have, have their seeds in earlier cases. Now, if I can do a flashback. Under Tada, there was, you know, because the abuse of the law was so rampant and people were spending years and years in jail which are without trials concluding and so on and so forth. Two judgments of the one judgment of the Supreme Court, particularly Shalin Welfare, and another judgment, uh, Supreme Court uh, Legal Aid Committee, where noting the long period of incarceration that there was a practical reality and the constitutional right to speedy trial, the Supreme Court laid down some categories for release of prisoners, even under Tada. That is somebody who is not part of the hardcore conspiracy or the action, but found with arms in unauthorized areas or only uh, had a peripheral role other than what they called hardcore terrorists, they, after two years or three years or five years for each of these categories of so many years in prison, if the, um, as under trials, if trial is not concluded and a judgment has not resulted, then they can be released on bail. There were some other judges, judgments also which lamented the long period of incarceration and you know, and pondered over what would be the fate if eventually they are released, uh, acquitted, and what is the purpose of this long incarceration. So the seed for what Najib eventually held recently had been planted in those judgments. Now, Union of India versus Najib was a case where a person was arrested under a UAPA, he had been absconding. So the co-accused had been tried and sentenced to eight years. Now he was caught and he had moved for five, three or four, I think six times. And bail had been refused, quoting the stringency of 40 provision under UAPA. After he had spent four, four and a half years in prison, the High Court released him on bail. Kerala High Court released him on bail falling back on the constitutional right to a speedy trial and holding that you're caught in a serious offense. You have a legitimate expectation that you will be tried in time. And if you are not, then constitutional courts have the right to fall back on constitutional, the constitutional mandate, which can never be limited by any statute. And there is an entitlement to be released on bail. Now, I'm going to now deal with something which might have come later because trial courts were not normally releasing anybody under UAPA. Anybody meaning they were refusing to, uh, for the most part, not granting bail by another logic, by employing the logic that the statute requires us to hold or to assess whether the accusations are prima facie true. And in as much, particularly with charges have been framed. Charges are framed only when a court feels that the accusations are prima facie true. 
So the mere fact of having framed a charge would suffice now to decline bail at any point of time. Given that, now what Najib says is, with the passage of time, the violation of the constitutional right to a speedy trial magnifies. And the rigor of stringent bail provision under UAPA would reduce, but the Supreme Court uses the term constitutional courts have the power untrammeled by 43D, that is the stringent bail provision. Now, this is interesting because if it's a constitutional mandate given to constitutional courts, do the trial courts have that power? There are other paragraphs in that judgment which would suggest that just the passage of time is ground enough. But trial courts have taken the view that even after this Najib judgment, this is a power which the constitutional courts would have in terms of the Najib judgment because it's a constitutional right that they are protecting. Although I have tried to argue in trial courts, and it's my view, that the duty to protect constitutional rights is not only of the High Court and the Supreme Court. So in interpreting the provision of the rigors get diluted with passage of time, that is equally a ground for the trial court to protect constitutional rights. But however, the word constitutional courts may do this in that judgment has led many trial courts to decline bail even after Najib. Now, Najib, therefore, to sum up, does three things. One, it effectively counters, because it's a three-judgment decision, it effectively counters the interpretation placed by Watali, that UAPA has more stringent bail conditions against the accused than the, uh, than the uh, other uh, NDPS Act, OTA, MCOCA, etc. That's one. The second thing is, the Supreme Court says in Najib that under the UAPA, not only is it a lighter condition, but it's simply an additional condition for grant of bail, even otherwise the court has to consider likelihood of repetition, absconding, nature of the offence, etc. Of course, the UAPA, the offence is very serious by definition. And third, with the passage of the fact that so this would dilute the logic that once charges have been framed as a prime offense, have you taken about the correctness of the accusation? Therefore, there can be no bail. And what Ali said, from the date of the FIR to the date of the judgment, the rigors would apply. That has also been effectively overruled, in my view, by Naji. Okay, I think uh, that definitely explains the Supreme Court's holding on this. And in that sense, it seems like Vatali uh, narrows down, down the scope for granting bail to a very large extent. Uh, Ma'am, should we come to the Delhi High Court's uh, decision, the recent decision in regard to uh, three people, that's Asif Iqbal Tanha, Devangana Kalita and Natasha Narwal? And uh, so over there, you have the Delhi High Court uh, finding that their acts of protest uh, against the Citizenship Amendment Act does not meet the standard of a terrorist act as defined under the UAPA. And on that uh, grounds, uh, grants them bail by saying that a prima facie case hasn't been made out. Uh, soon, uh, on appeal, the Supreme Court uh, states that this uh, judgment should not be treated as It's an interim stay as of now. It's only an interim state till the next date of hearing. Right, right. And so what do you think uh, 
is the takeaway from the Delhi High Court's decision? And do you think it's consistent with uh, the uh, ruling in Patali and what the Supreme Court now seems to think of Section 43D? See, for this, now you must understand the scheme of the UAPA. The UAPA, this special stringent bail conditions, I was waiting for you to ask this question, so I wanted to, I didn't want to start with that, you know, it might have confused the listener. Not all offenses under the UAPA are governed by the stringent bail conditions. For instance, there is chapter, the unlawful activities. Simply put, I'm dividing the UAPA offenses into three categories. There's unlawful activities. I think under Chapter 3, they've been realized. If death is caused on account of some unlawful activity, then of course, life imprisonment or death can be awarded. But the stringent bail conditions do not apply to offenses of unlawful activities. They only apply to offenses under Chapter 4 and Chapter 6. Chapter 4 is where... There is a terrorist offense, either committed or in contemplation or prepared for, or an organization which has participated in uh, any terrorist offense. And terrorist offense is defined. I think it is defined with a degree of clarity. I would not say that it is entirely too wide. That is not my view. That has never been my view. It's an un- my view is unpopular among my friends. But I say that it, there is there is an intent. There is a manner of use of certain certain material, and there is a consequence. It is offenses concerning terrorist acts and terrorist organizations, terrorist acts and attendant offenses, conspiracy belonging to an organization which has committed a terrorist act under Chapter 4, or others, membership, simpliciter, assistance to a terrorist organization, etc., under Chapter 6. It is only these two which are covered by the stringent bail conditions. And in assessing whether there is a reasonable case, I'm giving you a very, very simplistic example to make the point. Supposing there is an allegation in the FIR that I stole my neighbor's cow. Okay? And somebody puts 16... 18, 20 of um, UAPA. I'm giving you a particularly facetious example. And then we'll come to it. Let us assume that they bring enough evidence to show that I actually stole that cow. A court is entitled to say, all right. But the accusation that you have committed a terrorist act or conspired to commit a terrorist act or belong to a terrorist organization is not true on the basis of this material. Isn't it? So likewise, if the activity, that is why I said a terrorist act and a terrorist organization are clearly defined. These are the two kinds of broad structures to which the stringent bail condition applies. If I have committed some other act. Let's assume it leads to unrest. Now let's go step by step. Let's assume I, I'm holding a demonstration. After all, that was the case before the Delhi High Court. Let's assume I'm doing a chapka jam. It may cause some disruption. It may cause 
there may also be it may cause some rioting even but if it is not it may still not be the terrorist act and then the stringent bail condition would not apply you can even go further and say it is purely democratic activity i am saying even if it's a simpliciter unlawful activity the rigors of this bail provision will not apply that's perfectly logical but therefore when you are asked to form an opinion whether the accusation is prima facie true comprehended within that assessment would be whether whatever is accused accused against me whether it is true that it's a terrorist act would be necessarily an assessment in that situation so in assessing that whether something is viewed as and there is precedent for that from niranjan karamchand punjabi usman daud by mehman from a long string of cases in ordinary even if it's an offense ordinary offense is not meant to be covered by the main statute should not be dragged into it so if something turns turns out to be purely democratic activity which is not an offense at all even less is would it be a, a case under um, chapter 4 or chapter 6 so that assessment is within the four corners of the statute and i would not say that vatali would interdict that because what vatali says is look whatever material they bringing unless it is unless you can rebut it you must take it as true vatali doesn't say even if you take it as true if the four corners of the section are not met then you must still refuse bail that is not vatali has not entered that that area at all but as i said najib now alters the assessment of nature of assessment under 43b from vatali but none of nine from no judgment will say even if the acts alleged against me taken at face value don't constitute a terrorist act even then you want can't be given bail that is neither the statute nor any judgment so in my view this is what the delhi high court has said in my view it's an extremely logical right so it's definitely welcoming that the delhi high court was in a position to critically look at the state's accusation of terrorism and call it out for what it in fact was an act of dissent those were the questions that i had on the supreme court's interpretation of section 43b and also the delhi high court's uh, recent decision finally as a more general comment on the uapa Uh, we notice that ncrb statistics reveal that only around 2.2% of cases registered under the act led to convictions between 2016 and 2019 how does one then justify such a stringent bail provision considering that several accused will ultimately stand acquitted yes it's certainly a great travesty it's a great travesty additionally a great travesty but i would say this provision is a travesty even if every one of them ended up being convicted right because by its very nature it's a travesty my view on terror and law is the following i think terror stands on a different footing than a murder or a theft or a riot and therefore i understand it being defined as an independent offense it's not just murder if you if somebody plants bombs across a city or several cities causing death and destruction on a very large scale for it you cannot treat it as quite the same as you know somebody murdering someone for property i'm not on the morals of it i'm saying the effect is not the same so terror as a notion 
I can understand. I can also understand since it is not something where you know motive etc would be so easily discernible as in a private crime. I can also understand the investigating agency seeking you know some special provisions to assist its investigation. But I cannot understand, and I see there is no justification for diluting evidentiary standards or for stringent bail conditions. Because once a person is apprehended, then you must leave it to the court's discretion. What is it only the executive which is concerned about the national security? Can a court not be trusted? After all, even in murder cases, there are other cases, sometimes even in, uh, you know, some other serious cases, they're quality, etc. Other offenses by forgery of a certain kind, forgery of, uh, of valuable security, which can be punished, I think, up to 10 years or sometimes life. I, I must check 467. Sometimes courts don't grant bail. So I see no justification for this provision because once you've got your person, then why should you not allow the normal law to take over? I can understand you want to define it differently. I can understand that in you need some, you know, special. Um, it has to investigative tools may have to be crafted in a certain way. But I see no justification once the person is caught to deviate from the normal criminal law. So uh, I think that's uh, more or less the end of our podcast and. Uh, thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much thank you, for thank, thank you so much, Trisha, for leading me through it with questions. With good, very good questions. It's really been insightful. <laughs> thank you so much.